If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. How does this tiny place get the attention of the ancient world for over a thousand years? How does it, of all the other sights and wonders that there were, how does it become the omphalos, the belly button of the ancient world? That was Michael Scott talking about the ancient site of Delphi. The Spanish Empire reflected a desire to expand um, a single religion, Catholic Church, whereas the British uh, North American Empire based on the idea to escape from an ideology. And that was Hugh Thomas on the Spanish Empire. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good news agents, or you can subscribe from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for our latest subscription offers. And we also have digital editions for the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The site of Delphi in ancient Greece occupied a central place in centuries of spiritual belief. It was visited by a host of famous figures from the classical world and is still a magnet for tourists today. But how did it come to play such an important role and what do we know about life in the town itself? These are some of the questions tackled by historian and broadcaster Michael Scott in his new book, Delphi, A History of the Ancient World. Michael spoke to our book's editor, Matt Elton, 
who started by asking him what inspired him to write the book. Well, I've been working on uh, Delphi for a long time. In fact, I first started working on Delphi when I started my PhD back in 2004. And uh, the site itself has been excavated since the 1890s. That's when the big dig, or the, the Grand Fruit, as the French call it, uh, began. And Delphi was sort of recovered from the debris into which it had uh, fallen. So it's been worked on a long time, and I've been working on it a long time. And what I felt was lacking in amidst all the extraordinary scholarship that has uh, been published about Delphi is a book that really brought it all together. I mean, I think it's really um, interesting that the French publish uh, the excavation uh, reports of Delphi in, in different volumes, and they dedicate different volumes to different things. So volume one is for the history of the site, volume two is for architecture and topography, volume three is for inscriptions, and so on. And there have been tons of volumes, you know, in, in those uh, different series that have appeared over the last hundred years, but not a single volume has been published under the title of the history of the site. Uh, and I think that says something really interesting. You know, if you talk to French scholars or German scholars, they often refer to this as sort of the English disease, uh, where the other people do all the sort of nitty gritty work, and then the English come in and do the synthesis. Um, and, and, and I think there's a certain extent that's probably true. But I think with Delphi in particular, it's actually really crucial to bring the story together. And, and so what the book tries to do for the first time, really, and certainly for the first time in English, is tell the whole story of Delphi throughout its thousand-year history, so from its very beginnings and actually bringing it all the way up to not just its uh, end in the ancient world with the advent of Christianity in the 5th and 6th centuries AD, but also right up to its story right up to today in the 21st century. And in doing so, it looks at not just the oracle, which is what you know made Delphi famous and which what most people think of when they think about Delphi. It tries to put the oracle in the context of all the other activities and events that were going on at the site. And it tries to do that by looking not just, as some previous works have done, at Delphi through the literary sources or through the archaeological material, but actually bringing all of that together to give, if you like, a 360 degree view of Delphi and to really get into the mindset of what the ancients would have thought and experienced when they came to Delphi and when they thought about Delphi. And for me, you know, our, our key question with Delphi is, how does this tiny site with a population around it of no more than a thousand people clinging to the mountains on the side of the Parnassian mountain range in Greece, you know, in quite a remote location, how does this tiny place get the attention of the ancient world for over a thousand years? How does it, of all the other sights and wonders that there were, how does it become the omphalos, the belly button of the ancient world? And I don't think you can answer that question by looking simply at the oracle or at dedications or at its games or simply at the literary sources or at a particular period of, it, say, its golden age in the classical period. You have to put it all together. And when it's, uh, it's only when you put it all together, I think, that we can come up with a really satisfying answer to why Delphi managed to be the success it was. The site has this huge and varied history. Uh, what do we know about its origins, its early days? Oh, that, that's, that's where things get very uh, uh, sort of mythical, mystical, mytho-history. It's really difficult to pull apart, but it's a really interesting case study for how the literary material and the archaeological material, when brought together, can help uh, inform us and give us a, a, a better picture. Now, uh, from the literary side of things, uh, our first answer to that question comes from the 7th century BC. And interestingly enough, it's a 
question that the Greeks themselves were asking. Where did Delphi come from? Why is Delphi where it is? And in the 7th century, you get the Homeric hymn to Apollo, the god Apollo. And it tells the story that Apollo one day fancied founding an oracular site. He travelled around the, the ancient world. He tried out a few places, wasn't really happy with any of them. Finally found Delphi, uh, which was occupied by a sort of dragon, uh, which he had to slay. And once he'd slayed that, he set up his oracle and he had uh, a temple built by legendary temple builders. And then he went, right, I need some priests. I need some people who are going to man this place. And he spied afar on the sea a ship of Cretan fishermen. And he sort of zoomed over, changed into a dolphin, uh, bewitched the Cretan fishermen, brought them to Delphi, dragged them up the mountainside and said, right, you are going to be my priests for eternity at this site. And they said to him, what a ridiculous place this is. You know, it's way out in the middle of nowhere. No one's going to come here. This is a death sentence. And he said, no, you know, don't worry. I will make sure that this place is famous forever. So, you know, that's one literary answer to where Delphi come from. The problem is that almost immediately, Alcaeus, another 7th century poet, gives us a different answer. Uh, that actually it wasn't at all, you know, Apollo just a flight of fancy. He uh, was told by Zeus that he had to found an oracular site and he didn't want to. So he ran off like a naughty schoolboy to live with the Hyperboreans on the other side of the world. And uh, Zeus sort of made him come back and made him do penance somewhere else and then forced him to found Delphi. And then you get to the 5th century BC and then the tragedians start giving us different stories that actually this oracle wasn't founded by Apollo at all. It's been there since the beginnings of time. In fact, it was founded by Gaia, the mother goddess, the goddess of uh, the font of everything. And she passed it down to her daughter, Themis, and Themis pa passed it on to Apollo. No dragon, no fights, no nothing. Then another tragedian goes, no, that's not the story either. You know, kind of actually Apollo had to fight Themis or fight the she dra the dragon um, for Delphi. And then these stories keep going on until you get even to Di Diodorus Siculus in the first century BC, who says, well, it wasn't really anything to do with the gods. It was the farmers of the local landscape who found Delphi because they realized that goats, when they were on the mountainside, whenever they went near this hole in the ground, they went weird and started falling in. And when shepherds went near this hole, they went weird and started falling in. So the local citizens decide to put a three-legged tripod over this hole and sit some poor woman on top of it. So no one else is going to go weird. And that's the beginning of the Pythian priestess. So uh, what's for A, I think the crucial point is that the stories about why Delphi is where it is and where Delphi came from uh, began very early on in Greek history and they continually were reinterpreted, reassessed, rewritten, if you like. Delphi's history is not a series of facts. It is a series of reinterpretations and reassertions about the past, normally to help with present uh, means. So it's very interesting that in the 5th century BC, as Delphi starts to sort of have a lot of competitors, other oracular sites that are claiming visitors and thus cash, it's no surprise that at that point you get uh, stories circulating about its beginnings that push it all the way back to the very beginnings of time and to the mother goddess Gaia. You know, that Delphi can claim an ancestry better than anyone else's in order to compete uh, within the current world. The archaeological material, on the other hand, tells us an interesting story of a place that was not destined for greatness, born for greatness, people flocking to it the moment it was uh, created, beautiful temples, all this sort of jazz. It tells the story of a very slow evolution uh, of a site from about you know, the 11th, 10th centuries through the Dark Ages, slowly gathering a community of people, certainly nothing... Uh, nothing like the defined sanctuary of Apollo that we see there today. Uh, and not really until 
the late 8th, early 7th centuries BC, does the archaeological material tell us that we are dealing with um, a, a, a real sort of sacred, recognisable site? Uh, and that, of course, is about the same time that we start hearing about oracular pronouncements and people coming to the oracle. So the archaeology cannot answer the question for us, when did the oracle start? That is lost in the mist of time. We simply can't know. But what the archaeology does tell us is that Delphi wasn't born great. Uh, it was born struggling and slowly building uh, a, a, a community that would explode in the late 8th and early 7th century onto the Greek scene, uh, and with it, all the literary stories that told us about these mythical and magical and wonderful beginnings at the hands of the gods. So what role did the site come to play in society? I mean, I think it is quite extraordinary when you think about it, that this tiny place with a community of no more than a 1,000 people sitting in central Greece, basically throughout the 8th, 7th, 6th, 5th and 4th centuries, its oracle was involved in pretty much every major decision that had a, an impact on, on the history and timeline of the ancient Greek world. So issues like colonisation, the founding of colonies in Cyrene and modern-day Libya or over in Sicily and southern Italy, uh, going to war, the famous consultation by King Croesus of Lydia who asked the oracle, you know, should I go to war? And the oracle replied, well, if you go to war, a great empire will fall. And he went, great, that will be my enemies then. Turned out it was his own. Um, so from war, colonisation, the, the foundation of communities. We know that the famous lawmaker Lycurgus of Sparta went uh, supposedly to consult the Delphic Oracle when writing the or, or, or gathering together what's known as the Great Retra, the sort of founding document of the Spartan constitution. Equally, when democracy was coming into focus in Athens at the end of the 6th century, uh, and Athens was choosing its um, tribes, its uh, tribal heroes that the new, uh, if you like, like sort of districts of the democracy were going to be labelled after. Uh, the uh, fa founding fathers, Cleisthenes, the Athenian politician, went to Delphi and consulted the oracle on those names. And then, of course, the Persian invasions of Greece in the 5th century, the Athenians went to the Delphic oracle to ask what should they do. Uh, and the response, mystical response, came back, trust in your wooden walls, uh, which the Athenians took back and thought about and decided meant their ships. And so they evacuated Athens and eventually had the great success um, over the Persians at the Battle of Salamis. And so it continues. I mean, it's not really until you get into the 4th century BC that the oracle at Delphi starts to, if you like, wane in its importance. After the 4th century, or well, indeed the middle of the 4th century, we don't really have any definitive recordings of it being asked major political questions, uh, major military questions that really defined the Greek world in the way that it had done in the past. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why if you only focus on the oracle, you don't understand how Delphi maintained its success and its importance and its position for over a thousand years because by the fourth century BC um, really the oracle is more of a kind of cultural plaything in many ways um, than it is a serious uh, contender in in political and military affairs so you then have to look elsewhere and you then have to look at the other businesses that were going on at Delphi, one of which was its athletic and military competitions. Now, Delphi, its games, its athletic and uh, musical competitions, its Pythian games, named after the Pythia, the Pythian priestess of Apollo, um, they were on par with the Olympics. You know, there were four sanctuaries that had 
games that were considered the, 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 the Premier League, if you like. They were known as the Crown Games, and that was the games at Olympia, the Olympics, the games at Delphi, the Pythian Games, the games at the sanctuaries of Ismia and the sanctuary of Nemea. Uh, and they had games at Delphi happened every four years, just like the Olympics, and they drew, we think, something like the same kind of crowd, 40,000 odd people coming every four years to Delphi. And in fact, interestingly enough, Delphi has the earliest archaeologically found uh, gymnasium structure. Not at Olympia in the Olympics, didn't have a gymnasium till sort of the third century BC. Delphi has one from the fourth century BC. So it seems that, you know, just as the oracle starts to fade away, um, it's investing heavily in its athletic and musical competitions um, to provide more and more facilities for people coming. And those games carry on right through uh, until the fifth or sixth century AD. And at the same time, the other big thing that we have to put into this mix is the business of dedicating at the sanctuary. Now, if you look at the maps or, or plans of Delphi today, you'll see uh, particularly the sanctuary of Apollo. It's absolutely crammed with stuff, buildings, treasuries, we call them, statues, statue groups, um, all sorts of things. And they're in gold, they're silver, bronze, uh, ivory, marble, um, an incredible array of exotic offerings. And these are all dedications, things that individuals or cities have come along, built in the sanctuary and dedicated to the god. Now, why would they do this? Well, partly sometimes it's in relation to the oracle and thanks to the oracle for, for a good response, a good idea, a good bit of advice. But a lot of the time it's to do with the fact that these individuals or these cities want to make an announcement about themselves. And you're in a world where there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no internet, Facebook, Twitter, there's no newspapers. How do you spread news around the world in a place where people can really only hear it if they see it or if they hear it from someone in sort of oral transfer? Um, you have to go where lots of people go to on a regular basis. So sanctuaries like Delphi, where you could guarantee that people were coming for the Oracle and people were coming for the athletic games, became great notice boards, great places in which to show off about your latest success. And so people would build a treasury to say, hey, you know, look, we're this rich, we're this amazing. Or they put up a statue group when they'd had victory in a battle uh, against a foreign enemy or indeed against another Greek city um, to show off. And then 10 years later, when that other Greek city that had been defeated maybe had a victory over them, they'd come back and they'd put a monument up right opposite the other one, say, Yashuk's boo, we're now better than you. So this sanctuary really is, it's a cacophony of statements of greatness by individual cities and of real kind of jockeying for position, if you like, sort of no holes barred, jamming elbows into other people's ribs uh, and shouting and showing off, um, all in the name of uh, worshipping the god Apollo at Delphi. Can we trace archaeologically the changes in the site's purpose across time? Uh, yeah, I think we can. I mean, the particularly with dedications, you know, that's an extraordinary archaeological record for us. And the great thing about religious sanctuaries um, in, in the ancient Greek world was that once something was in that sanctuary, it was technically the property of the god. And so as a result, it could not be removed. It belonged to the god. Now, that's an archaeologist's dream because it means that everything is there still, you know. And we know that this place got so packed that on regular basis, they had to have cleanups. And so they can't chuck the stuff away. They can't get rid of it. But, you know, things degrade, things get broken. And so what we found in the site, for instance, are archaeological pits um, that were dug. And there's a famous one that was dug in the 5th century BC, where they bury a whole host of dedications that have got broken or bashed or battered into the ground. They're not getting rid of them. They're not chucking them out of the sanctuary. So they're not breaking the rules, but they are getting them out of sight so that they can 
clear up space to have more stuff in there. So you get these extraordinary, if you like, uh, uh, time capsules of stuff that, that they've sort of buried away and put out of the ground. Um, and that tells us a little bit about the sorts of things that were being dedicated, the, the styles of dedication that were popular, say, in the 6th century, and then in the 5th century, and then in the 4th century. And... You know, these things are not being prefabricated elsewhere and then being brought to Delphi. You're not going to carve a, an elaborate statue and then transport it with all the possibilities for knocks and bashes and breaking things off on sea and on land and dragging it 600 metres above sea level up to the sanctuary. You may kind of roughly carve it, but then you'll actually finish it in situ in the sanctuary itself. So Delphi was a hive of activity for craftsmen throughout uh, its, its existence. And what you can see, what we can trace, is if you like, within this melting pot of ideas, money and desire to show off and better one another, you really do get the creation of extraordinary artistic techniques and architectural ideas that are born at Delphi. And then when those craftsmen go off back to their home cities or go off around the world to build something else around the Mediterranean, you see those ideas spreading again. So Delphi becomes, if you like, this petri dish for artistic and architectural invention that then spreads out around the ancient world as well. Are there any major figures that are associated with the site? Sure, I mean, take your pick. Pretty much every major figure in Greek history travels through Delphi at some point. Um, and that's from uh, Aesop, of Aesop's fables. He fell foul of the Delphians and they wangled to get him thrown off a cliff. Uh, all the way through to the greats of 5th century Athenian democracy and empire. Uh, all the way through to Alexander the Great, for instance. Now, he's an interesting one, actually, because of all the people who you might expect to dedicate something extraordinary and massive at Delphi, uh, Alexander the Great and his father, Philip the second of Macedon would probably be it. And in actual fact, those two are the oddity. They do not seem to have dedicated anything at the sanctuary of Delphi. We know Alexander the Great turned up famously to consult the oracle. And there were certain days on which you could consult the oracle, one day a month for nine months of the year. And he turned up on a non-consultation day, but he didn't really want to hang around. He had the rest of Asia to conquer. So he sort of dragged the poor Prithian priestess into the temple. Um, and she was like, oh, 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 you're, you're invincible. You're so strong. And he goes, well, that'd be great. Thanks very much. That's a great response. I'll take that. And he headed off to Asia. Um, so he did pass through. But it's interesting that those two characters, particularly important characters in Greek history, uh, didn't dedicate at the sanctuary, although they did, for instance, um, at Olympia. Now, the reason for that, there's lots of different reasons for it, one of which may be that, that Delphi was sort of very popular with cities and states who rather resented uh, the Macedonian influence over the rest of Greece in the 4th century. Um, but, for, you know, they're, they're a curiosity. You then get the Hellenistic kings, like King Attalus of Pergamon in Asia Minor, comes in and offers an extraordinarily large uh, stoa and, of course, statue of himself and one or two other things. And then the Roman emperors. Uh, pretty much every major Roman emperor has some kind of contact uh, with Delphi. Um, and even before that, we know that greats of the Republic, like Cicero, came to consult the oracle and came to Delphi as well. So, uh, you know, and Roman emperors were 
so keen to have a relationship that, with Delphi, or so willing to have a place in this extraordinary, by their time, sort of history board of the ancient world, that they would often accept to take an honorary magistrate position in the town of Delphi. I mean, can you imagine this tiny town of a thousand people in the middle of a hillside in the massive Roman Empire that covered the entire Mediterranean world? They could claim to have the Roman emperor as an honorary magistrate on their town council, you know, I mean, and that's not bad uh, by any means, shape or form. And other emperors were very willing to donate money. Domitian, we know, gave a ton of money to rebuild the temple when it was falling into abeyance. Hadrian visited the sanctuary, dedicated a statue of his uh, on-off lover Antinous there. Um, so really, there isn't, I don't think, a major figure uh, in Greek or Roman history that, can't, that we can't claim to have had some contact with Delphi. Delphi, if you like, was this magnet. It had... It very much like a sort of when a, a snowball starts rolling down a hill, once it gets that momentum going, it just builds and builds and builds and there really is no stopping it. But Delphi, because of all the different activities going on and the different ways in which it had managed to catch people's attention, it became an unstoppable rolling success where because it had been so important, people felt they had to have a place there and they had to go there. And as a result, its importance continued right the way through uh, and even past the adoption of Christianity as the major religion of the Roman Empire by Theodosius at the end of the fourth century AD. Uh, Delphi continues to adapt uh, and develop. And the Delphians themselves were very clever at responding to world events. So we know they would set up new religious festivals for people people, for, for big kings, for the Hellenistic kings, whoever was the power of the day. And when Christianity becomes the major world religion, and te uh, major Mediterranean religion of the Roman Empire, and uh, all technically all pagan sanctuaries are shut down. That should have been the end for Delphi, but it wasn't. They simply stopped using the Temple of Apollo, left it there, and within a century, you've got three Christian basilicas uh, built at the site of Delphi, and it seems to have been the home of a healthy, vibrant Christian community that doesn't really fall into ruin until the sixth and seventh centuries AD, when you get the invasions into Greece from the tribes from the north. Um, that really uh, the last archaeological note from Delphi is of the sanctuary and many of its beautiful monuments being turned into defensive walls as a last line of defence against these invasions. Um, and then the abandonment of the town. Uh, and what's so extraordinary for a place that has been so important for so long is that it then gets completely forgotten from the history books. Uh, mudslides, rock slides from the mountains above cover Delphi over completely to the extent that people forgot it was there. It disappears from the map and right the way through until modern explorers of the 17th and 18th century started again searching for Delphi. No one knew it was there. There was a, a local town that grew up over the top of it that was called Castri and they didn't realise what kind of extraordinary site they were living on top of. Um, and there's a wonderful moment again of the modern uh, Castrians, Delphians, really responding to world interest because in about the uh, sort of late 18th, early 19th century, as uh, interest in Delphi starts to grow again, there's a momentous moment when the local town school of Castri, they remove the name of it from above the entranceway and they replace a name that says the school of the town of Delphi. And Delphi is back on the map again. Um, and from there, interest builds until you get the massive excavation of Delphi uh, in the 1890s. And are things still being discovered there today? 
Yeah, I mean, so excavation has continued there almost ceaselessly. Uh, they rather, the French, when they did the, the first excavation, the big 10-year big dig, they, they likened it uh, to their sort of their Iliadic excavation. Uh, Homeric epic, um, and at the end of the ten years, the the chief excavator wrote that um, you know job was done. They're now going to get on with publishing it, and um, and and that would be it. You know how wrong he was. Basically, within within five years, they were back there excavating and finding more and more, and they've never really stopped since. The first, the last major excavation at Delphi was in the 1990s when they were particularly interested in the earliest archaeological levels at Delphi, really trying to get a handle on what the archaeology could tell us about those those early centuries the the 10th and 9th and 8th centuries bc since then there haven't been major excavations within the sanctuary of apollo uh, but what i think needs to happen and what the focus is turning towards now is if you like we've been blinded by the richness and beauty of what there is to be found within the sanctuary of apollo and indeed also the sanctuary of athena that was at the site as well but we haven't really engaged with what we can find out about the remains of the community the city the polis of delphi that lived around the sanctuary uh, and they have never really you know the surrounds of the sanctuary have never really been the subject of systematic excavation so if there is going to be a future push uh, for new excavation in Delphi I think that's where the focus is going to have to be trying to work out a little bit more about the actual community of people who lived at the site and lived by the site it was people coming to the, the sanctuary people paying to consult the oracle people paying to put up dedications um, that really was the lifeblood of this community um, and it would be great I think going forward in the future if we could get a bit more resolution and focus on them as well That was Michael Scott. Delphi, A History of the Ancient World is out now, published by Princeton University Press in both the UK and the US. And the book is reviewed in our July issue, which is currently on sale. Also in our July issue, we take a look inside the mind of Richard III. We explore some myths of the Wild West. We find out why the Battle of Bannockburn became so integral to Scottish history. And we discover the story of the Victorian letter scammers. You can get hold of our July issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And for our July issue, we've launched a fully interactive iPad edition, especially designed for the format. So if you do happen to have an iPad, this would be a great time to give it a try. You can find the BBC History magazine app on the newsstand or iTunes or else via our website. And if you take out a subscription, your first issue is free. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, 
Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane. Weird and wonderful historic buildings available to rent as holiday homes are proving a huge hit with holidaymakers. The Landmark Trust, a charity that preserves small historic properties all over Britain by transforming them into unique holiday homes, has seen business boom by nearly 15% in the past 12 months, The Telegraph reports. Some of its 194 buildings, which also extend into France, Italy and the USA, are now fully booked until 2016. The range of quirky properties includes a Georgian folly, a former Victorian pigsty and a Victorian railway station building. Proving the most popular is Astley Castle, a 12th century fortified manor owned by Elizabeth Woodville, the wife of King Edward IV, which had fallen into disrepair until it was restored in 2005. In other news, ships sunk during the First World War are to be offered increased protection under a UN agreement. Many wrecks are today threatened by salvage operations, deliberate destruction and looting, but the UNESCO Convention on the Protection of Underwater Cultural Heritage will now be extended to thousands of sites. Introduced in 2001, until now the convention only applied to ships sunk at least 100 years ago. A spokesman for UNESCO told BBC News that the move will make a real legal difference. It is estimated that Britain mobilised 11,000 war vessels during the First World War, of which some 1,100 were sunk. Meanwhile, Education Secretary Michael Gove has said that schools should teach children about the feelings and suffering of German soldiers in the First World War. Speaking at the Chalk Valley History Festival, he argued that it was just as fascinating to examine how the soldiers of Germany approached the war as to read about the feelings of the British. According to The Telegraph, Gove said, I think what we owe to those who fought is the dignity of dealing directly with them to find out why they acted as they did. Let's remember that for many of those who enlisted, they believed they were doing the right thing. If we look back and regard the war solely as a tragedy without any nobility, then we do them a disservice. Thanks for that, Emma. The historian Hugh Thomas has written extensively on the Spanish Empire, most notably in a trilogy of books that began with 2003's Rivers of Gold. The final book in this series, World Without End, The Global Empire of Philip II, has just been published and covers the spread of the Spanish Empire around the world. Matt Elton went to speak to Hugh at his home in London and began by asking him for his thoughts on the Spanish king, Philip II. I think he was an extremely hard-working monarch who realised that in order to maintain his empire, he'd have to work very hard. He chose to work in a monastery as well as a palace at which the Escorial was. And he chose to work with secretaries who brought him material to look at. He would make a note on, on, on these documents saying what he wanted to say. Mm. He was very much a man who wanted the 
problem brought to him on paper. Yes. Rather like Frederick the Great. Yes. As I've said, actually. Um, he, didn't, he didn't want to do things in conversation. No. I think he was a much more interesting person than we in the English world usually think. For example, his support of Titian for such a long time shows that he really understood painting in a way that I don't think any English one in those years had the opportunity to. But they, there were some, there were some uh, sensitive qualities in, in the Tudors, but um, I don't think they were so interested in painting as, no. as Philip. He, he really ran a kind of theocracy. Okay. Um, all his most senior officials were bishops or cardinals, after all. Mm. So how important was the Catholic Church in this story that you tell in this book? I think it was decisive. Mm. And uh, there's a map, for example, of, of the number of Franciscan monasteries, uh, Augustinian monasteries, and Jesuit places, where, which uh, I think is an extremely important map. Mm. It's interesting, in the book you talk a lot about the physical structures of this religion, of this faith, so the cathedrals, the monasteries. To what extent can we see the fact that the Spanish built all of these buildings as evidence that they thought this empire would last forever? Well, I think they didn't think they were there for a short time. No. <laughs> <laughs> they thought they were. They were. They thought they'd convert the 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 naturales, as they call the natives, mm. and um, they would have a religion which they, the Spaniards and the Europeans in general, approved of. And whatever you say about the Christian religion, it was superior to the, the religion which based itself on human sacrifice on such a large scale. I mean, how, how did the Spanish go about managing such a diverse empire of diverse peoples? Well, I think partly by denying it was diverse. Mm. <laughs> because they arranged a structure which had many similarities with what they did in Spain itself. And... The first action after a conquest of a town was to establish um, a city council. Okay. And the, the most prominent conquerors who had taken part in, in the fighting, if there had been any, were, were immediately named councillors, Councillor Schmidt or Councillor Thomas. Okay. And then from then, the Spanish have this extraordinary ability to manage people into towns. How did they do that? Well, they... They persuaded the, the, the native peoples that they would be safer. They wouldn't be attacked by bandits, and, and they would find it more easy to, uh, to to be converted if they were established in a, in a, in a new city. Mm. And um, that was perfectly true. It also enabled them to pay tax, pay taxes <laughs> yes. more efficiently. <laughs> so both sides benefited. Definitely. Yes. Yes. I think, I think, uh, I'm not um, being the devil's argument, but promoting the devil's argument, I think on the whole, the Indians thought that it was a good thing to be, the concentration of towns was a good thing. Okay. So they did genuinely believe it was a positive step in I their lives. I think they did. Yes. How, how would their day-to-day -day lives have altered following the conquest of their... Well, of course, there was uh, um, their experience exposure to European diseases, which was terrifically important yes. and very destructive. And although 
there was fighting and people were killed in battles, but the, uh, the, the real destruction was caused by disease rather than by war. So their main enemy was disease, in that sense? Well, war, the, the Spaniards didn't expect uh, the diseases to be so effective. No, no. Well, not effective, but, but consequential. Mm, yes. How, how did their diet change as a result of the spread of the empire? Well, they had wheat brought in from, from Spain, they had barley, um, and they had um, European fruits and vegetables. Mm. Um, the Spaniards also benefited by having maize and chocolate yes. and um, other things which were indigenous to the New World. Maize, I think, was the great, great achievement. But don't forget the potato. Yes. Or, or indeed the tomato. I mean, our Christmas, our Christmas dinner with the turkey and the tomatoes and potatoes, it's entirely a New World concept. So it really altered both sides' diets. It usually. certainly did. Yes, it's incredible, isn't it? Yes. Um, of the territories that uh, the Spanish Empire conquered in the period that you write about in the book, which proved to be the most difficult for Spain? Well, I suppose um, Peru did turn out to be most difficult, though it was the richest. Mm. And the Spaniards themselves quarrelled br brutally over it. I think that the easiest, really, in some ways, was Mexico, New Spain, which they colonized with great assiduity and care. And um, I think that it was done earlier, and possibly that it was done more effectively. Um, what is interesting is that the Spaniards don't seem to be affected really by height. The height of Mexico City doesn't seem to have affected them. That's interesting, yeah. Or, or Cusco. I mean, they certainly had difficulties and, and diseases they got, but anyone who goes to those places knows they have to take care of, uh, the first day or two anyway uh, for fear of contracting mountain sickness, Sorezzi. Mm. Um, and how, how difficult was Florida, for instance? Well, Florida was, was pretty difficult, but there was a brilliant c commander, Menendez de Avilés, who uh, really controlled uh, it in the end. That is an interesting point, though, in the sense that what can the spread of the Spanish Empire tell us about the rest of Europe during this period? Well, and you remember that uh, Francis, king of of uh, France and I said I'd like to see the clause in Adam's will which, which uh, guaranteed the Spanish and Portuguese control of the new world uniquely. I'd like to see it but I don't believe it exists. <laughs> so there was some resentment of this? Oh without doubt. Mm. Um, but um, in the end the peace was made and Span the Spaniards accepted that anywhere where they had not themselves uh, uh, penetrated could be absorbed by other other European people. So that did happen in the 17th century with the British, um, the Dutch, and the French. Mm. And empires based on those th three other countries were added to the Portuguese and Spanish empires. I see. It is interesting. I mean, what can we gain from comparing the Spanish Empire to the British one, for instance? 
Well, uh, Octavio Paz said they must realize the difference between the English and the Spanish Empire is that the Spanish Empire reflected a desire uh, to ex ex expand um, a single religion, the Catholic Church, whereas the British uh, North American Empire was based on the idea to escape from an ideology too. That is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Heading back just briefly to the Spanish skill at kind of corralling these people into towns, um, how vital was that in the success of the empire? I think it's more successful than we, we can imagine. Mm. We think, well, it's just a technique which was necessary to do, but actually it was a very successful way of, of, of arranging the organisation of the empire. In both North America, which includes for this purpose, um, Mexico, I think, mm. Mexico and Central America, and South America, which, of course, covers the whole of the rest. Yes, yes. Okay. We, um, we are talking, basically, about two nerve centers, mm. um, Mexico and Peru. Right. That is what the Spanish Empire and the New World was, basically. I see, yes. Okay. Um, something that's interesting is the idea that the Spanish were quite reflective. They questioned their right to rule over other peoples. Oh, yes. I think that's an extremely interesting uh, contrast with the other European empires, and indeed with all other empires in history, as far really? as I know. Okay. You know the, the Roman Empire or the Chinese Empire. I don't think anyone in, in Rome, I don't think Caesar sat down and talked to his uh, generals and said, do we have any right to be in Gaul? What about going to that place called Britain? Do you think we have any, any uh, justification for crossing that channel? Yes. Uh, but that's what the Spaniards did. Mm. And there was a long controversy between this brilliant and magnetic person, Bartolome de las Casas, and more conventional people, um, that, uh, uh, such as Sepulveda, uh, in, in Spain. And uh, basically speaking, I would say that... Uh, um, the human humanitarians won the argument in Spain, but the conquistadors themselves won the, the argument in, on the ground. So that, basically speaking, they did what they liked, but they they did discuss it, mm. which is a very interesting fact. It is, yes. Why do you think the Spanish were so good at considering these issues? Well, I think they had, they had a moral obligation. They thought they had a moral obligation to do so. And um, uh, the, the role of Christians, particularly the, the religious orders, was extremely important in the conquest. Mm. Um, when, when Cortes conquered Mexico, he sent for Franciscans uh, more than he sent for ammunition. Yes, okay. So it was a, it was a core part of, of... Absolutely. Yes, yeah, okay. I mean, in a sense, the first generation in New World was a theocracy. Mm. And I think that's a side of things which is completely neglected in English studies of, of the Spanish Empire. I did read, for, for, with benefit and enjoyment, um, Seeley's book of the Expansion of England, and, and he says some very dubious things about Spanish Empire, how, how disgracefully they, the Spaniards, he, he thought, had behaved. Mm. But that was quite wrong, actually. Okay. Celia was a, was a great Cambridge historian, 
and uh, um, and he, he was very influential. And he, he, it was he who said that the British Empire has been conquered in a fit of absence of mind. But the fact is, he did neglect it, what was the reality of the Spanish world. Mm. Um, how important, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of, there's several key things that's nice to talk about here, but how important was uh, silver to this, this story? Well, um, it's a very important question because one usually thinks, well, it was um, precious metals was a key element. But the fact is it was silver rather than gold by, by, the, late, by the time of Philip II. Gold was important, but less, far less significance, whereas the silver was terrifically important. And we all know that, uh, that Earl, the famous American Earl Hamilton, was, was correct when he said that the import of, of precious metals into Europe was one of the reasons for the inflation which, which occurred in Spain and therefore in, in the rest of Europe um, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. It is interesting how something like that can have such a knock-on effect. Yeah, yes, it is very. Mm. And talking about another factor, how important are books to this story? Well, I thought they were very important, but I'm not sure I can justify it completely. But I think that, that the fact that the, uh, the um, discovery of the New World occurred in the generation following the, um, the development of the printed book extremely important, just as, of course, it was very important for the Reformation. The Reformation wouldn't have occurred in anything like the way that it was, the way that it did, had it not been for the availability of, of holy works, which the, which the printing press made. Uh, and um, I think the books of uh, so-called um, chivalrous literature are very interesting. Um, uh, I'm, I can't be certain I've got it completely right, but there was a wonderful book by a man called Irving Leonard, American, who said that the conquistadors were given their agenda, more or less, by these extraordinary stories like Abadis de Gaulle, Thierry Leblanc, and their successors. And they, they were, it was they who talked about Amazons. They were talked about um, uh, men with... Uh, with uh, three eyes or uh, one eye in the middle of their, of their breast and these are fantastic, fantastic stories of heroic and undertakings. It's very interesting. I think I've got a paragraph or two on the subject in the book. Mm. So spreading these fantasy ideas was yes. important to this story as the spreading of ideas in the Reformation? I think it was. Think, yeah. Why do you think um, China proved to be the obstacle that couldn't be conquered in that sense? Well, they didn't really try. Um, the Jesuits and Augustinians and some others went to China and they thought that they couldn't be conquered with a certain amount of men. We can, I think that, that the governor of the Philippines, whose name I find if I'm mistaken not, was called Ronquillo, and the, mission, the Bishop of Manila, whose name was Salazar, and they didn't agree on anything, but they did agree that with about um, three or four hundred men and, th and about 20 or 30 ships, Spain could do from the Philippines in China what Cortes had done on behalf of Charles V in Mexico and wrote to that effect. Mm. 
um, subtitles scanning the numbers down to a ludicrously small figure. <laughs> <laughs> they thought they would they would stir up trouble in the in the uh, dependent provinces of China and get them on their side. And then, like uh, did happen in, in Mexico, mm. but they did see, they did think it was a real possibility. Do you think it's fair to say, in any sense, that the end of the reign of Philip II marked a turning point in European politics? Yeah, yes, I think it did because um, uh, there was no, there was no further great adventures. By saying no to the, um, the Chinese adventure, the king was saying, "Well, we, my empire is big enough, and, I, and look at it. I'm, I've just absorbed the Portuguese empire too, as the whole of Brazil." And and uh, a lot Portugal, it seems, has a lot of little territories in the Far East. Is there a place called Macau which could, we could use? What about what about uh, the, those Jesuits who are in, in Japan? They, they will do something surely for us. I think that, I think they thought they'd got to the end of that stage of their expansion anyway. Mm. That was Hugh Thomas. World Without End, The Global Empire of Philip II is out now, published by Alan Lane. OK, so that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your thoughts on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll try and read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who's written in recently was Pat Patterson out in Tennessee. Pat says, I don't know what I would do without your podcast. Thank you, thank you. Well, thanks for that, Pat, and I can assure you there's no danger of having to do without us anytime soon. And do please keep your messages coming in via email, or you can, of course, reach us on Twitter at History Extra, or on Facebook, where we're also History Extra. And do make sure to check out our website, historyextra.com, for history quizzes, news, galleries, articles, and all the back episodes of this podcast that go back to 2007. Next week, we're going to be joined by Peter Finn and Petra Kavay, who will be talking about CIA efforts to undermine the Soviet Union using Western literature. It promises to be a fascinating episode, so make sure to tune in for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in London and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 